I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the newly renamed Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Thanks for listening to our China Global podcast. Xi Jinping wore a huge grin when he met President Joe Biden on the margins of the G20 summit in Indonesia last November. He also struck a moderate tone in his speech in Bali, as well as in meetings with several other leaders, especially Australia's new prime minister, Albanese. Are we seeing a shift in Chinese foreign policy? And if so, is it tactical or more strategic? And what's driving it? The White House coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs, Kurt Campbell, suggested at a conference in December that the Chinese have recognized that certain elements of their foreign policy, such as their wolf warrior diplomacy, have been unsuccessful and, in many respects, he said, backfired. Other experts have speculated that Xi Jinping needs to focus attention on addressing the mounting economic and pandemic challenges at home. And therefore, he needs a more favorable external environment, in particular, reduced tensions with the United States. To discuss the factors shaping Chinese foreign policy at this juncture and the trajectory of China's approach to the world, I'm delighted to have as my guest today Ryan Hass, who is Senior Fellow in the Center for East Asia Policy Studies and the Jun Fu and Cecilia Yen Ku Chair in Taiwan Studies at the Brookings Institution. Thanks for joining us today, Ryan. Thank you, Bonnie, for the chance to be with you. So, Let's set aside the U.S.-China relationship just for the moment. We'll dig into that shortly. I want to start by asking you how you interpret Xi Jinping's sort of coming out party at the G20. Of course, he was coming out from COVID hibernation in facing the West, but he had been in Samarkand and met with non-Western leaders. So this was his Western coming out party. Do you see a shift coming out of that meeting in Xi Jinping's public diplomacy and in his foreign policy approach? And if so, how would you characterize it? Well, Bonnie, I think that Xi Jinping spent a lot of time inside China for a considerable period, both because of COVID, but also because of his prioritization on preparing for the party congress and consolidating his uh, desired results, making sure that his loyalists were put in positions of, of power coming out of the party congress. He came out of the party congress feeling pretty confident about uh, how that played out. He went to Bali and he was Xi Jinping. He's the same Xi Jinping that I've been watching for the past 10 years. I didn't notice any personality transformation in him. But because he had been inside China for so long, I think that caricatures had begun to build and sort of solidify in the West about Xi Jinping as this rigid, highly ideological, unbending force. In reality, he's the same person that he was for the past 10 years. And it's notable that now that he is back on the world stage, he's met with, I think, over 25 world leaders since late October. We're going to have to get used to this. He's back. He's going to be with us. Uh, for a considerable period of time. And he is going to adapt and adjust to the environment that he operates in. So what do you think about this notion of China having maybe overreached, uh, maybe recognized that it has put a lot of pressure on other countries, that it's been too tough, that the wolf warrior diplomacy hasn't worked and maybe even has backfired? Does this make sense to you? I'm not confident that the, the Chinese foreign policy apparatus is so self-aware to re recognize that it is overreached and that, uh, that it needs to make adjustments to put forward a charm offensive. But I do think that the Chinese have made adjustments to account for the fact that they have mounting domestic challenges that they have to contend with, that adding external stresses on top of those domestic challenges makes life more difficult for them. I think that they also want to avoid isolation or encirclement. I think that the Chinese are uncomfortable with the amount of progress the United States has made in solidifying relationships along China's periphery in Asia, but also in, in strengthening transatlantic unity and coordination on China. And then 
thirdly, China's leaders are returning to the world stage. They want to return to a favorable environment where they're well-received, they're accorded respect and, and treated with dignity, and they don't want to be challenged or embarrassed. And so if you add those three pieces together, I think it provides a, a pretty compelling rationale for why the Chinese would want to maybe adjust the packaging and the promotion of their product, but not necessarily the, the underlying product itself. I agree with that. That's a great analysis. And and part of that, of course, is the new foreign ministers. So we have Chin Gang, ambassador to the United States, having already returned uh, to Beijing and taken up the mantle. So it's only been a few weeks, um, but uh, we've seen some new points that he's made regarding China's relations with Africa, for example. Do you expect to see anything different from Chin Gang? And will it really matter if he moderates his approach and isn't as wolf warrior-like as his predecessor? Which, by the way, I don't think Wang Yi, by his very nature, is a real wolf warrior type. But over time, he toughened his approach, which I believe was an instruction coming from the top or perhaps a perceived expectation from Xi Jinping that the foreign ministry would more staunchly defend Chinese interests. Well, I completely agree with you, Bonnie. I, I don't think that by temperament, Wang Yi is looking for dragons to slay. Uh, that's not really his personality, having been in the room with him many times. But I do think that he has sort of adopted the proud nationalistic tone that his leadership has set. And as China's leadership tenor begins to shift, I think that Qin Gang's tenor will as well. So if, if the goal is to lower the temperature from China's perspective with other countries along their periphery in Europe and, and also with the United States, then I expect that Qin Gang's public presentation will reflect that goal. Well, I'm sure you agree that it's important to distinguish between the rhetoric and the behavior. And in the past few months, just looking at what the Chinese um, have done uh, on their periphery, of course, with Taiwan, growing military pressure, even after the Pelosi visit and then the passage of the National Defense Authorization Act, they responded quite strongly to it. But the level of the activity inside of Taiwan's air defense identification zone has been significant. We saw another confrontation in December between Chinese and Indian forces along their disputed border. And in the East China Sea, Chinese Coast Guard vessels stayed in the territorial waters around the disputed Senkaku Diaoyu Islands for 72 hours, which was um, really unprecedented. It was the longest since uh, 2012. So obviously, these are all territorial disputes, and China certainly doesn't want to be seen as weak or making concessions. Does that lead you to believe that maybe we're just going to see a little bit more in terms of smiles, moderate tone, but that we won't see any real changes in, in behavior. That's my expectation. And I'm glad that you sort of walked through that inventory of, of examples of how China's underlying behavior really hasn't shifted, even as the tone or tenor of their public presentations has, because it's an important point. I would even add to that list by underlining that their domestic activities, that tight grip on society hasn't loosened at all. State intervention in the economy is still very strong. PLA expansion and range and frequency of operations is not going to abate. And I also don't think that, that China's diplomatic activism will either. At a broader level, I think that China's national ambitions are unchanged uh, as well. So I think what the Chinese would like to do is reset relations with countries along their periphery, with Europe and with the United States, at as lowest cost possible for themselves. And so if they can do it rhetorically, all the better. If they can tie the United States up into a long discussion about principles that should guide the, 
the overall relationship that don't require the, uh, China to alter their behavior, that would be a win for China. And if they can compel uh, Europe to see that their long-term economic interests depend upon stable, functional, constructive relations with China, then that would be to China's benefit as well. Do you think that this slowdown in the Chinese economy, which we'll see uh, over the course of 2023, the extent to which China grows, I think coming out of zero COVID, they're likely to have a spurt in growth, but probably we will see lower growth in the years to come. Some people are projecting maybe 2 or 3%. There are others who are even less optimistic and think China may not grow very much at all. But China will certainly have some economic problems and now demographic uh, challenges that are really taking effect. 2023 may be the year that India becomes the most populous country in the world. Do you think those drivers will make China more or less aggressive in its foreign policy? Or do you think those won't be important factors? No, I do think they will be important factors. I think that the Chinese leadership has a finite degree of attention and mind share to be able to devote to problems. And the most proximate challenges that Xi Jinping confronts when he wakes up in the morning are domestic. And so it's natural to me, and it's consistent with the pattern of Chinese behavior historically, that when they confront significant domestic challenges, they want to try to lower external stress in order to concentrate attention and mind share on domestic challenges. And they have, you know, extraordinary domestic challenges right now, a unique set of challenges coming out of COVID, the, the societal shock of that, a youth unemployment rate that is near 20%, trying to stabilize the property market, trying to shore up the finances of local governments across China, trying to encourage consumption, trying to find uh, uh, demand for, for their export sector. This is an extraordinary set of challenges that are all converging at once on, on China's top leadership. And so confronting uh, that scale of challenge, it makes sense to me that they would like to try to reset relations with other countries and lower the temperature if they are able to do so. So let's talk about the Australia case, which looks like an interesting potential reset. I mentioned in my intro about Xi Jinping's meeting with Australian Prime Minister Albanese in Bali. We know that relationship has been very acrimonious in the past few years following the prior Prime Minister Scott Morrison's call for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID-19. And then, of course, the Chinese presented Canberra with a list of demands that they change their foreign policies. And Beijing followed by banning imports of almost two dozen Australian products. In just the last day or so, it was reported that the Chinese have made a decision to start importing coal again from Australia, which is one of the products that they banned. There's still lobster and wine and barley and other products, of course. When I was in Canberra at the end of last year, I had the sense from talking to officials that they judged that their very tough and principled approach toward China had worked that they taught Beijing the lesson that Australia would stand up for its interest and that economic coercion won't work, and that now China is backing off. So if that's accurate, then it fits with the theory of overreach and adjustment to policy. But I'm not so sure that's exactly how it will play out. How do you interpret China's approach to Australia at this juncture? Well, I, I commend Australia for maintaining a principled and firm position in the face of Chinese pressure, and I don't want to steal uh, anything from the, the firmness of their approach. But I, I would struggle to make a compelling case that Australia was the reason for China's moderation in its approach to Australia. I think that the reason for China's moderation in its approach to Australia is China. It's in their own self-interest to lower the temperature for all the reasons that we've been discussing. The Chinese want 
to restore an incentive for Canberra to believe that there is a value in having a constructive relationship with China. They also want to try to preserve a certain degree of distance between Australia and the United States. And so it's in their own interest to try to find ways to lower the temperature. And, you know, on the margins, uh, Australia's unbending approach may have contributed to that outcome. But ultimately, I think it was a decision that Beijing made out of its own self-interest. I tend to see the Chinese as transactional. And I thought from the beginning that if they really wanted to improve relations with Australia, that they would try to get something for it. So do you think that will be China's approach? Maybe they'll start importing coal, and then they'll ask Australia to make a reciprocal gesture. Australia will be hosting the Quad Leader Summit later this year, and perhaps the Chinese will try to persuade them not to handle that meeting in a way that would make China lose face. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. If I was China's ambassador to Australia, I would want to make sure that uh, the Australians were highly aware of China's sensitivities and uh, and their concerns, and uh, to be attentive to those as they were thinking through their preparations for events like the Quad. So let's talk a little bit about Europe. I think Xi Jinping met with all of the European leaders who attended the G20. Of course, he had met with Germany's Chancellor Schultz weeks earlier in Beijing, and he will soon welcome French President Macron. Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a major reason for the deterioration of China-Europe relations in 2022. Do you think the Chinese have realized that they are driving the U.S. and Europe closer together? Is their main goal to perhaps put a wedge between the two now? Do you think that they can actually separate this alliance to some extent, perhaps forestall European countries from getting on board with U.S. restrictions, particularly in the sale of high technology to China and some of the other areas the Biden administration is now looking at beyond semiconductors is imposing restrictions such as on quantum computing and artificial intelligence? I'm not sure that the Chinese have hoped that they can create a wedge between the United States and Europe. I do think that the Chinese would like to create a little bit more equidistance between Europe, the United States, and China if they're able to, so that it's more of a, uh, a clear triangle and not a lopsided triangle with uh, the United States and Europe on, on one side. As I sort of try to listen to the messages that the Chinese are sending to Europe, I hear a few themes that come through pretty consistently. One is that we recognize you Europeans have a big problem in Ukraine. We can be part of the solution to that problem for you. We can help rebuild Ukraine. We can try to play a role in encouraging a peace settlement uh, of some sort in the future. And so they want to, the, the Chinese want to position themselves as part of the solution, not part of the problem uh, to the situation in Ukraine, even as they remain very supportive, rhetorically at least, of, of Putin and of Russia. But I think that the Chinese also want to try to feed uh, the EU's appetite for strategic autonomy and demonstrate that they agree with Europe on the importance of multipolarity in the international system. I think that they also want to try to uh, leverage uh, their economic gravity as much as they can with Europe. They want to say that uh, we recognize Europe is dealing with a lot of challenges from the fallout from Ukraine. Do you really want to add to those challenges by straining relations with the second largest economy in the world right now? I don't think so. Let's not do that. And so uh, I think that the, the Chinese, I don't have a sense that they feel deeply stressed uh, about where Europe is right now. But I, I also think that they're attentive to it, and, and they want to try to create uh, a little bit more distance between Washington and Brussels if they're able to. Well, before we turn to the U.S.-China relationship, I want to just touch a little bit on Southeast Asia. ASEAN has been very important to China, continues uh, to be very important. The, the Chinese have kept most of the Southeast Asian countries 
on their side uh, so that none of them have aligned very closely with the United States against China. Mm -hmm. um, even countries that work very closely with the U.S., such as uh, Singapore, militarily. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese have been pushing for a code of conduct, and uh, they have not made, I think, very much progress uh, towards that end. And it seems to me they're going to face some new challenges. Uh, Indonesia has now decided to drill in the Natunas, and that's one challenge they will face. And then, of course, they have a new leader in the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And they agreed when Marcos visited China a few weeks ago to strengthen economic ties, to handle their South China Sea disputes through friendly consultations, including, interestingly, negotiations on oil and gas exploration, and establishing a communication mechanism to avoid escalation of tensions in their disputed waters. Although we have yet to see what is meant by that communication. Uh, mechanism. Also, the Chinese pledged almost $23 billion in investment in, uh, in projects in agriculture, energy, and, and infrastructure. And so this looks to me like the Chinese really want to prevent Marcos from sliding more towards this uh, alignment with the United States, which maybe it's an opportunity for the Philippines to balance that relationship and get the best of both worlds from both China and the United States. But I still think that the Chinese are trying to, once again, drive a wedge between the U.S. and its and its allies. So do you think that's the way China looks at it? And do you think that they have a good chance to be continue to be effective, as I think they have been in the past, with ASEAN? Or do you think China's going to face more problems in that region going forward? Well, first on the Philippines case, I mean, as a friend of the Philippines, I hope that those pledges are realized and that uh, some of that money actually flows into projects that benefit the people in the Philippines. We'll have to wait and see on that. But more broadly, I think that China is going to try to play to its strengths in Southeast Asia. They're going to try to lean upon the gravitational pull of their growing economy. They're going to try to really solidify themselves as a leader of the developing world who understands and appreciates and is willing to work with uh, developing countries to help them meet the aspirations of their people. But I think that they're also going to try to present themselves as a uh, solutions provider to leaders who feel threatened by social instability. And these are some of the avenues that I expect that the Chinese will try to use to protect their market share of influence in Southeast Asia. Well, now we're going to dig into the U.S.-China relationship. It seems to me that Beijing would like to arrest the downward slide in the U.S.-China relationship, but that it's not necessarily willing to to do anything concrete to achieve that goal. The Chinese are still putting blame on the United States for all the problems in the relationship. They basically say the ball is in the U.S. court. The Biden-Xi Jinping meeting in Bali produced statements by each side expressing interest in resuming cooperation and pursuing talks on reducing risks between their militaries. But the follow-up meeting that took place in December in Longfang with U.S. and Chinese officials didn't seem to produce much progress. Uh, the two sides, it's, again, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me they were unable to come to agreement on principles to guide the relationship, which you mentioned before. And cooperation is limited. We did have a meeting recently between uh, John Kerry 
and Xie Zhenghua, his um, his counterpart on climate, but on health, narcotics, um, other issues, I, I sense that there really hasn't been much progress. And yet, this fall, Xi Jinping will likely visit the United States, San Francisco, the United States will be the host of the annual APEC meeting. So there could be a summit, and that does present another opportunity for the two sides to stabilize and improve the relationship. But of course, then work has to be done in the interim. So what do you think of my assessment? Um, What do you think China hopes to achieve in the U.S.-China relationship? And do you see any shift in Beijing's approach that really differs from the approach from the first two years? Well, I think that the Chinese would like the appearance of a reset in relations with the United States without having to pay any price to achieve it. I think that's sort of the goal. Because one of the metrics upon which China's leaders are judged is how well they manage their relations with the United States. And this hasn't been a particular bright spot for Xi Jinping in his decade of leadership of China. So I think that President Xi has his own incentive to wanting to show his people that he has things with the United States under control, that they need not worry about it because it's in his capable hands. But to do that, he needs to find ways to have visible visible symbols that he, and by extension China, are being afforded respect and dignity by the United States. And I think that this creates an opportunity for the United States to trade form for substance if we have enough creativity uh, and bravery uh, to pursue it. Because we know what the Chinese want, we know what Xi Jinping wants, we know he's going to be coming to the United States in November for the APEC Leader Summit, and that he likely will ask for a separate meeting with Joe Biden, apart from the other APEC leaders, to show that he is different and treated better than all the other Asian leaders. Will they want to come to Washington? He may want to come to Washington. He may want to come to Sunnylands to repeat uh, his experience with uh, Barack Obama, or he may want to go somewhere else. But he wants a picture that he can show his people of how well he is being treated. That's what he wants. What do we want? And what I hear so often from our our government counterparts is that our goal is to build a floor and to establish guardrails in the U.S.-China relationship. Relationship. And from where I sit, that is neither strategy nor policy. It's so low on ambition, it hardly qualifies as a bumper sticker. And so the question I would ask is, why aren't we using this moment of leverage to secure concrete gains on, on issues that we prioritize? And how do you think we should do that? What should the Biden administration do differently? Well, I think that uh, Secretary Blinken's trip to China in February presents an opportunity to set expectations about what we want to have achieved by the time Xi Jinping lands in the United States and sets foot on American soil. That if he wants to have the meeting uh, with Joe Biden that uh, so many of our Chinese friends have been suggesting would be wise, that there needs to be some concrete progress on issues that we prioritize, whether it's opioids, whether it's public health, climate change or uh, some of the risk reduction measures around the use of uh, autonomous weapon systems or or anti-satellite testing. There are practical things that we can push for if we choose to do so, and and now is a moment of, of leverage to do so. You recently published an article which was titled A Roadmap for U.S.-China Relations in 2023. And in that article, you wrote, in the 1950s, Mao Zedong used a strategy of fight, fight, talk, talk, to buy time, to regroup, to study the opponent, and collect strength to re-enter prolonged struggle. And then you wrote, a similar effort may be unfolding in Beijing now. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think that the Chinese believe that they are in a long-term struggle with the United States uh, to achieve their goals of national rejuvenation, that the United States is the biggest impediment along their path towards national rejuvenation. And so I don't think that they have any expectation that the relationship will be smooth or benign between the United States and China. 
But given the totality of challenges that the Chinese leadership confronts right now, now is not the time for a, a galactic showdown or a confrontation with the United States. Now is the time to, to calm the waters, to study the opponent, to circle the wagons, and, and prepare for the long road ahead. And so rather than just sort of conceding that uh, China can have things their way, why don't we use our understanding of what they're trying to achieve to achieve objectives of our own that help us solve problems that uh, the American people expect their leaders to solve? So lastly, I wanted to ask maybe what are the indicators we should be looking for going forward and this year, next year, uh, that would tell us whether China's foreign policy is in fact uh, changing in significant ways, even if it isn't fundamental or strategic, but something more significant. And part of that question is really whether we and allied countries, other neighbors that China has, can influence Chinese policy. I think there are many people who believe that China's policy is set in stone, that Xi Jinping doesn't really care about what the rest of the world thinks. So can we shape the way China approaches the world? And what would be the indicators that we're having some impact? Well, Bonnie, I will just say that cynicism is easy. It's easy to be a cynic about uh, China's overall foreign policy and, and strategy and what it means for the U.S. and U.S. interests and whether or not we're capable of influencing their decisions at all. But let me just offer that if we had it just sort of fallen for such cynicism a year ago at this time, would China have withheld military support to Russia in the prosecution of its war in Ukraine? I don't know. Would Xi Jinping have voluntarily come out and articulated that no country should threaten or use nuclear weapons in a sort of pointed rebuke of Vladimir Putin? I don't know. Would we have resolved the auditing problem that uh, if it had not been resolved between the United States and China over Chinese listed companies on American markets could have wiped out billions of dollars? in American investors' holdings. I don't know. The point I guess I'm trying to make is that there are practical ways to move the ball. It requires persistence and toughness and sort of thoroughness, but it is entirely possible. The Chinese are not monolithic on some hardwired, unilateral, linear path that is unchangeable or unbendable. The history of the U.S.-China relationship is a history of zigs and zags, depending upon events. Let's take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. I think we have an opportunity in the coming year, given the way that the calendar is set up in front of us, with uh, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping likely to meet at the G20 in September in India, and then the United States hosting China's leader in November at APEC. Great. And we will look forward to seeing what happens the rest of this year and beyond with China's foreign policy. We've been talking with Ryan Haas, who's a senior fellow in the Center for East Asia Policy Studies at the Brookings Institution. Thanks for joining China Global. Thank you, Bonnie.